Welcome to Native Currents, a critical look at what's going down in Indian Country. I'm Glenn Wheeler. On this week's show, what is history? Is it the story of what happened? Or is it merely make-believe, a sanitized account in which settler crimes have been edited out? Those are the issues that the city of Halifax and the Mi'kmaq people of Nova Scotia are dealing with. More specifically, how are they to treat the legacy of one Edward Cornwallis? If you've ever been to Halifax, you know how ubiquitous is the Cornwallis name. There is a park, a street, a statue. There is a Canadian Forces base elsewhere in Nova Scotia. All in honor of the man credited with the founding of Halifax. But Cornwallis was no friend of the Mi'kmaq people. When he arrived in 1749, and for the next three years, he was in near constant conflict with the Mi'kmaq. The English authorities counseled him to make peace with the Mi'kmaq. Instead, he issued a scalping proclamation, offering a financial reward for the scalp of every Indian delivered. It was only after he left, three years later, that a shaky truce with the Mi'kmaq emerged. Is this the sort of figure who should be celebrated, idolized, honored? Certainly not, say the Mi'kmaq, who want his name removed from buildings, parks, and streets. But when the matter came before Halifax City Council, councillors voted against even appointing a committee to look at the issue. You can't rewrite history, say those who voted against. But just as Cornwallis wasn't the beginning of the story, so was the vote not the end. Removing Cornwallis is not rewriting history, it is correcting history. The definitive history of Cornwallis and his relationship with the Mi'kmaq was written by freelance journalist John Tatry. It's called Cornwallis, the Violent Birth of Halifax. John joined me on Native Currents. I started our conversation by asking John, what is the modern-day view of Cornwallis by the people of Halifax? Hello, John. Great. Okay, so why don't we start off with that first, uh, with that first thing. Uh, I, I did go to, uh, to J School in Halifax, and I know how pervasive the Cornwallis name is. It's one of those things where I guess many people just hear the name and, and don't really think about it. But uh, uh, of people who, who have given up some thought, what, what would you think are the associations in the minds of the, uh, the ordinary Halifax uh, resident about uh, Cornwallis and who he was? I first got involved in the, the public side of this debate in 2009. I think this illustrates uh, pretty well how people see it. So there was a, a Dan Paula, a Mi'kmaq elder here, he wrote uh, We Were Not the Savages, sends a, an email every once in a while, and in this case, in 2009, he sent one out with a picture of a local magazine uh, with an ad in it, and he said this ad is either racism at its worst or ignorance, and I don't know which which would be worse. And the ad that he'd taken a picture of showed a hairdresser's salon, and they were selling real human hair extensions, and they had posed in front of what turned out to be the Edward Cornwallis statue. You could see the plaque right behind them. I wrote a story about it for a newspaper, and it, and it flared up kind of the latest round of public debates about Edward Cornwallis. And I actually talked to the guy who took the photo, who set up the ad, the ad for the real human hair extensions, and he was horrified by what he had done. He had no idea who Edward Cornwallis was. And he said, you know, why don't you put warning signs out? Why is there just a statue in a park to this guy with no no warning as to who he is or as to what you're you're stepping into? And, of course, because of the scalping proclamation, that's what Dan Paul was responding to that the, the craftsness of having real human hair extensions next to the Edward Cornwallis 
statue. And I think that explains what a lot of Halifax people think about uh, Cornwallis. His name is everywhere. It's on streets. It's on buildings. Uh, it's, he sort of makes cameos in our history books as we learn about it, but we know almost nothing about him. So it's, it's ignorance and a sort of awareness that it's a, a Beetlejuice word. I'd say with Africville, it's one of those words that if you say that out loud in Halifax, people will, uh, you'll stir up a debate. Right. So I guess because of the, uh, the interest of the Mi'kmaq people of Nova Scotia in the Cornwallis history, there's, we've gone somewhat from the situation, situation in which he was a hero on the pedestal, on the statue, the quote-unquote founder, uh, and therefore uh, glorious historical figure. So there's some, there's some uh, meat on the historical bones in um, among certain circles because of the uh, the involvement of uh, Dan Paul and some others. Yeah, and uh, there's a St. Mary's University professor. Um, John Reed, who has the three ages of Cornwallis, and, and he talks about how, like, the actual man, uh, who was who the one I write about, and you know, who came here in 1749, founded the city, uh, attempted to exterminate the Mi'kmaq, attempted to drive out the Acadians, and then left in 1752. And once he left, he's kind of forgotten. Like, when you read history accounts from the next 50 years, they don't really mention him, or the next 100 years, really. He's just kind of forgotten as one of the many figures who, who played a role here. But then in 1899, the city is looking to celebrate, uh, I guess it would have been the 150th anniversary of it, and they, they're looking for a British figure to sort of pin the celebration on, and they pick Edward Cornwallis and sort of dust him off from history, and they write a 17-page paper on him in 1899, the first biography of him that I could find, and that leads to the momentum to build the statue, which goes up in 1931 as a celebration of the achievements of the British race and basically a pro-colonization statue in that interwar years to, to get to that British identity that the city was looking for. And when it was opened, you can see pictures of hundreds of people sitting in chairs in the park that had music. You know, It was a big day without any hint of controversy about it at all. And then the third age is when uh, Dan Paul starts digging into it and, and sort of exposes the, the truth of that at the fuller picture of history, what Cornwallis, what he actually wanted, what he said. And that's the, the phase that we're, we're, I think, at the end of now is the controversial phase about who was he. Was he the heroic founder or the, the, the horrifying genocidal uh, person? And I think for most open-minded Nova Scotians now, it's pretty clear that at best you can say he was both but you can't overlook the genocide. I think we, we know that now. We have the evidence. And um, as you see, the, um, well, the, I guess the, the, the latest chapter is the recent uh, vote at Halifax City Council on whether to appoint a committee to look at a naming policy. And that was, a, um, that was also a, a fairly passionate uh, debate on uh, on both sides of the question. Yeah, and, and a bit embarrassing for, for Halifax from my perspective. The councillor who put the motion forward actually was just, as you say, putting a motion forward to discuss it, just to open a discussion about Cornwallis and his role in the city, and eight to seven they voted against discussing it, which actually maybe turned out to be a good thing or there's good to be extracted from that because I would say universally people who are in favor of keeping the statue there, people who are opposed to it, all wanted to talk about it. Everybody thought that this was a useful way to spend uh, public resources was to, to explore him, but they kind of jumped the gun and thought that we would just conclude he was a terrible person and the statue should come down, but somehow that led them to think we won't vote about, uh, talk about it. So eight of the seven, you know, eight to seven, they lost the vote. 
but I think it could come back, and I think the next time it comes back, maybe the mood has changed enough and council will have recognized that enough that they will at least talk about it and and really listen to, to Mi'kmaq people is the main thing because the council, as our poet laureate, who is a Mi'kmaq woman, pointed out, it's it's all white and it's, it's kind of tips to the older scale, so it's a lot of older views, a lot of, uh, you know, educated in a, in a Nova Scotian education system that presented this picture of Halifaxism of Cornwallis as the heroic founder and Mi'kmaq people is not on the agenda at all. But I think the city is, is changing its perspective on that and, and hopefully eventually uh, council reflects that. Now, it's it's interesting the argument uh, against uh, the appointment of the committee. It's an argument that's often used in uh, in these kinds of discussions, this argument that we can't quote-unquote rewrite history. And... Uh, you know what uh, the argument goes that we can't uh, look at those uh, those far off days with the same values that we have today, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's all part of the package, and we just have to accept it as as history. But uh, I wonder what you think of the rewriting history argument, because the way I see it, and I think as your as your book shows, we really don't know. Uh, or haven't known until recently, um, the history. So it's not, uh, to some extent, it's not rewriting history, but writing history, uh, because we haven't uh, we haven't really had a, uh, a a balanced, complete view of what uh, of what happened when uh, when when Cornwallis arrived on these shores. Yeah, and in this last debate, amazingly, one of the councillors said, "We can't whitewash history." And I thought, hang on, is this, has she changed her position and she's now in favor of taking down the statue? But no, she was making that as an argument in favor of Cornwallis. I thought, especially with the word white in there, it's just so bizarre that she could describe it as whitewashing to what, you know, to tell the full story of Edward Cornwallis and who he was. And, and yeah, I, I think as, as somebody who's written history books, I've got um, four or five books about history. I know what it's like to write history. So I know like with the Cornwallis book, I was able to write a more full biography by going back to the sources and reading all of his uh, council minutes when he was here, his letters to his bosses, their letters to him, the private diaries of other people who were here in Halifax at the time, and the transcripts from his two court marshals in the 1750s. I found those and was able to publish those for the first time. And so I know that I had to go and find things. And so while my biography is, is complete and the best available, if today, you know, this afternoon, somebody playing in his old family mansion in England discovers his personal diaries, then we'll have to rewrite history because we'll have more information. So this idea that it's like a, it's a set in stone fact, it's just, it's a bizarre way to look at history, a very antiquated way to look at history, one that no contemporary historian would think about it, I don't think. But it also overlooks the fundamental problem, which is that that there is no Mi'kmaq history taught in Halifax, or very, very little. There are very few street names or statues or public markings in, in any way. And so the previous 14,000 years of history is pretty much wiped off the board. There's something like 27 provincial museums in Nova Scotia, and zero of them, of the government-funded ones, are about Mi'kmaq culture. So, yeah, we do need to rewrite history. I'm quite upfront about that because it's been... Uh, told in such a way that isn't true. So we should tell the, the truth should be the important thing, not if it's the same story we heard when we were kids. It should be, do you have the evidence to back this up? And, and I think that's where we're getting to. So in a way, there's uh, even though the uh, the Big Mall were were in that territory for well, they were 100% of the uh, 
the population uh, before the uh, the Europeans arrived, and as you pointed in the book, uh, they are now about one percent of the population. Um, and despite uh, despite the 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 history of the Mi'kmaq, there are probably more references to Cornwallis in the Halifax area than to uh, than to uh, the Mi'kmaq. Uh, leaving aside the Mi'kmaq uh, uh, Mall and some uh, some B grade uh, references like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and beyond that, into the history books, like I have a full public education here, right up to university level, and I studied social anthropology, which really should be about these things. But it was only when I wrote the when I was researching Cornwallis that I realized the sort of fundamental level of ignorance I had, which was things like I didn't even know what Mi'kmaq people called this land today or historically. Uh, I didn't know what the territory was, what Mi'kmaqi was, where the boundaries was, or how people lived, or how they evolved over the millennia. So the fact that that 14,000, you know, there, there's a site in, in DeBert here in Nova Scotia that they can trace back 14,000 years and show people there. So the fact that that 97% of human history is about uh, Mi'kmaq culture and, and, and pre-European culture, and yet 97% of the history in the city and in the province is about the last few hundred years. The museums, the the things that we honor are, it's just Mi'kmaq culture has just, it's like it never existed. And, uh, you know, for, for me, uh, like I, I, as soon as I graduated from Dallas, I went traveling and did a lot of backpacking and loved, you know, discovering new cultures and learning new ways of seeing things. And for me, it's been this great joy since I've been back in Nova Scotia to learn that there is this amazing culture, this Mi'kmaq culture that has these legends, these stories, these ways of seeing things that are about the same land that is so familiar to me. So I have this as, as this uh, two-eyed seeing way of looking at things now, where I, you know it's really enjoyable to think about the European stories associated with landmarks and also the Mi'kmaq history underneath that. And I don't think we have to have an us versus them approach anymore. We can just accept that there are different ways of looking at history, different ways of understanding the land and, and what happened, and we can embrace all of those. And as you as you you have some references in the book to your own uh, to the to the Tatry uh, family and uh, and when they arrived and they were uh, they they arrived your ancestors arrived in the in the first waves of uh, of uh, European uh, settlements so it's uh, part of it is your personal history also. Yeah, and and it was it was fascinating to read about that. The Jean Georges Tatry, the first Tatry who came over here, he was a Protestant in Europe, and at a time when it kept switching from Catholic to Protestant, and if you sort of lagged behind in converting back and forth, you could face serious problems. And so he was a Protestant in a Catholic world. Uh, a Catholic priest arrived to take over the Protestant church with his army, uh, opened fire on them, shot Jean Georges in the leg. And that led him to flee as a you know a religious refugee down the Rhine over to England, and there he's you know he hears about this new land, this Nova Scotia where there's land aplenty, uh, everyone is rich, there's lots of you know it's beautiful. Just get on the ship and away you go, and and that's yes. what he was told, and that's what he arrived, and then he arrives to to find a completely different thing. And I've actually visited the land where he was settled uh, in in Tatamagush, and it was thick. You know, thick woods, uncultivated from a European perspective, and of course, still occupied by Acadian people, by Mi'kmaq people, and he basically found himself in a war zone. So I've been thinking a lot about people like that. Those are the people that made Halifax. He, you know, he stayed. Cornwallis was here for three years and left. These bureaucrats, they came and went, they got paid, but people like that who fled as refugees and who found, you know, once they got here, they found they were in a situation they had very little control over. 
And it's those people that built the province. It's those people that moved us away from scalping proclamations and this idea that you have to kill everybody who's not inside of your society to the point where we are today, where we hopefully can be more embracing and more intelligent about these things. Yes. And I, I suppose the the question is, uh, what do we do with uh, with how do we deal with Cornwallis now? Uh, as you say, uh, as you mentioned, uh, and as you describe in the book, even the the British uh, Cornwallis's uh, British uh, Oprah Lords uh, uh, were wanted uh, an arrangement with the Mi'kmaq uh, at the time, and uh, to some extent, Cornwallis was uh, was out of step with the uh, with the the British powers that be at the time. And uh, soon after, he left uh, the people who replaced him. Entered into some kind of shaky peace with the with the Mi'kmaq, so he, he does stand out as a uh, uh, as a bit of a warmonger, even in um, in settler history in 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 in, uh, in Nova Scotia. Um, at the at the end of the book, you're talking to the person in England who uh, who keeps the crypt the crypt keeper of uh, of Cornwallis, and uh, and you're talking about her about. Uh, about Cornwallis, and I think her suggestion is, well, we take that statue and we wheel it out of this heroic place of prominence and and put it in a in a museum in a less prominent place, and uh, and perhaps the idea is to have to is to have a more complete story of Cornwallis in a new, uh, more historically neutral uh, location. I think absolutely. Like I. I... As a historical figure, he's fascinating, and there's a lot we can learn from him when we put him into an educational context rather than this sort of uh, laudatory, he's a hero, don't think anymore context, which is what the, the statue is. And you talked about him standing out for his violence, and it's not surprising, which is one of the things we can learn about how Britain at the time was run with a true 1%, an aristocratic military government, essentially, that controlled everything. And so Cornwallis born to a very upper-class family, a very privileged family. He grew up on the same street as the king. They were they were good friends growing up. And in 1746, he had his first great success, which is when he uh, participated in the pacification of the Highlands in Scotland when Bonnie Prince Charlie's rebellion against British rule was crushed. Cornwallis and 320 other men spent a summer raping and murdering and driving off the crops in Scotland to pacify, to make it uh, obedient to the British crown. And he was promoted for that. He was celebrated for that. He was paid for that. And that was what he came to Halifax three years later with that in mind. And he basically tried to replicate it here, even though, as you say, his bosses, which was the Board of Trade, it wasn't a, a military pr proceeding, it was a trade proceeding, would regularly say to him, well, how about making trade posts with the Mi'kmaq instead of uh, war, because it's just too expensive. Uh, but when he stops acting in that violent way in the 1750s, he twice declines to go on missions that he thought would have been too risky excuse me, for his soldiers, and he's court-martialed twice. The uh, first time he's court-martialed, the second time he's called as a witness, and his career is destroyed. So I think that's what we can learn when we have him in a museum setting, is that whatever you think of Edward Cornwallis as a man, whatever he was actually like as a human being, the system he was in promoted him and gave him power when he was violent and stripped him of power and made him poor when he was peaceful. So you can see that that's, that was the, the problem that he was fighting with. And his replacement, Peregrine Hobson, as you say, did build a peace and, and made things a little better. Peregrine Hobson had been here for quite a while and knew the area quite well. 
uh, but unfortunately was injured a few years later and had to go back to England, and that's when Charles Lawrence re- comes in to replace him, and that's when the Acadian expulsions and the persecution of the Mi'kmaq picks up. So uh, when we when we treat uh, Cornwallis with uh, with in a complete historical context, we not only uh, get a more uh, a more complete view of the of what happened, what truly happened when he arrived on those shores, but we also get a more complete picture of him. And as you say, people are Edward Cornwallis, and uh, and all people are are complex creatures. So uh, it's uh, we can achieve more historical accuracy in terms of the the greater history, but in, but also Cornwallis the figure and uh, and the fact that his heroism is uh, is quote unquote is is very specific to to his involvement in Nova Scotia. And he actually ended up uh, as a rather as a, as a somewhat pathetic figure, quite in contrast to uh, the way he's been treated in the. Nova Scotia historical context. It's all it's all very strange and very interesting about how we think about our identity. So I mentioned that he had just crushed the the Scottish rebellion, and that meant that if you had a kilt, if you had a, a crucifix or anything that indicated you were a Highland person in Scotland, you could be killed right there. You know, no trial, nothing else. And then he comes here and he found Halifax, goes back to England, and he is, as you say, forgotten everywhere else. I couldn't find any traces of him on Gibraltar. He'd been there for 16 years, and it was just two lines in the, the history book of Gibraltar. And yet he is later resurrected as a hero here in the 1930s. And at the same time, the provincial government in Nova Scotia uh, is embracing the Scottish identity of Nova Scotia, and that's when we get the Cape Breton Highland National Park. That is established, and that's when the provincial tartan is created, and, and we start getting bagpipers at the borders. So it's it's just a bizarre thing that he is being celebrated at the same time as the culture he sought to destroy is being resurrected. It wouldn't have made any sense to him. Yes. Well, John, uh, thank you for filling us in on uh, on Edward Cornwallis and the uh, the need to to write history as well as uh, rewrite history. And I I have a feeling that uh, this is not the uh, the last chapter, but. Uh, the uh, beginning of the middle of the story, so we have uh, we have more chapters to go. I, I agree, and and thank you for this this podcast. I, I've been listening to it, uh, the back issue since we first started talking, and it's it's uh, an insight into a Canada that I knew very little about. Like I, I often have to remind myself that you and Stephen are talking about the same country as me because the experiences you go through, the challenges, the Kafka esque bureaucracy. It's it's just something that as a white person I never see, I never hear about, and I rarely think about. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Native Currents. Check us out online, nativecurrents.blogspot.ca. Subscribe on iTunes. This is Glenn Wheeler. Bye for now.